You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual You wake up, you open Twitter. Actually, I should take a little personal responsibility here. I statements. I wake up. I open Twitter. I hope you're smarter than I am. First thing this morning, open Twitter, and I see a tweet from a famously homophobic right-wing Christian pastor, Pastor John Hagee. He likes to blame hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes on the gays because, as everyone knows, there wasn't weather or tectonic plates until after Stonewall. Anyway, you open Twitter, you see the right-wing pastor popping off again, and you think, oh my God, I hope my husband doesn't see this. Not because it's going to hurt his feelings. It's just, well, Pastor Hagee tweeted this. God gets excited when you get down on your knees. Ugh, it's just that Terry already thinks he's God, Pastor Hagee. Could you just not? And a man who can afford private jets and mansions in gated communities, maybe you could hire an ex-gay to read your tweets before you post them? Like a sensitivity reader for tormented, self-hating closet case who can't help but tell on themselves? Anyway, speaking of Terry, we were talking to a doctor friend the other night, and Terry asked her what the COVID infection rate looks like in our neighborhood in Seattle. We live on Capitol Hill. Maybe you've heard of it. Site of the recent Chaz Chop Autonomous Zone, one of those Democrat-run hellscapes Republicans won't shut up about. And they're right. Everything is on fire here. Well, everything that's not a trendy restaurant with outdoor seating, where the tables are spaced six feet apart, and the waiters are wearing masks, and the cooks are wearing masks, and the diners are wearing masks until their food comes. Riding through my neighborhood right now, it is like, you know, building on fire, brunch spot. Building on fire, brunch spot. People running for their lives. People asking waiters if they should get the goat cheese frittata or the salad nissoir. That's how we are wasting away here in Antifaville. Anyway, our doctor friend tells us the COVID infection rate in Seattle is very, very low, which is why those restaurant patios are open and have been for more than a month and why our gyms here recently reopened. And here's the thing. Infection rates are low because mass compliance is high. Odds are good that the masked person sitting next to you at the brunch spot in Seattle or the masked protesters who pass you on the sidewalk on their way to the next demo, or the masked person on the treadmill next to you at the gym, odds are really good that none of them have COVID-19. But the lesson here isn't, hey, we can all stop wearing our mask now because the infection rate is so low, but rather the infection rate is so low because we've all been wearing our masks. And if we want to keep that infection rate low and our gyms and restaurants open and hopefully one day soon our schools, we need to keep wearing our masks. At a brunch spot, on the treadmill, with a hookup, we should all be wearing masks. Remember, perverts, if you're going to hook up with someone you don't live with, you got to wear a mask. Don't kiss. Don't touch your face. And be sure to wash your hands immediately after. And if you don't have access to a glory hole, it's really not that hard to make one. And who amongst us hasn't been tempted to punch a hole in the wall recently? Anyway, infection rates are low where I live because mask compliance is high. The same can't be said of, wait for it red states. COVID-19 hit blue states first and hardest, and Donald Trump immediately made mask wearing a partisan issue and secretly loved COVID in his rancid little heart because it was killing mostly brown and black people in blue states. 
When cases started rising in red states, people noted, Jared Kushner, I'm sure, brought this to the attention of the president, that most of those cases in red states were in blue counties in red states, counties that had voted for Hillary Clinton. So no reason to do anything. Well, now Philip Bump reports in the Washington Post, seven in 10 new cases are in red states and most new cases in red states are in red counties. You know, places where people refuse to wear masks because masks are for pussies in blue states who want to hit the gym and then get some brunch before heading to the protest. And not something that churchgoers in Iowa, currently the hottest hotspot in the country, need to worry about. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir here and many of you are already wearing masks and I can't imagine I have many listeners in red counties in red states. But on the off chance I have some listeners in red America, maybe hate listeners who haven't been wearing masks... We are currently on track to see 400,000 deaths in the United States by December 1st. If 95% of us, 95% of Americans were to start wearing masks, if the rest of America looked more like Seattle, 120,000 lives could be saved. Those are data from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. There's a lot going on right now. I know. I am a news junkie, and I feel like I OD'd and died about three months ago. Like a lot of you, I am overwhelmed by feelings of powerlessness and despair right now. That's why I'm spending more time than I care to admit watching Selling Sunset, a 90-day fiancé, time I used to spend watching the news. But we aren't powerless. We have the power right now to save tens of thousands of lives just by wearing masks. All right, coming up on today's show, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, Dr. Jen Gunter returns for another deep dive into all things Vag. That's on the magnum. Subscribe to the magnum. Twice as much show. More questions, more answers, more guests, and no ads at savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a quarantine sex story. My boyfriend and I work together. We see each other during quarantine, but at work, we are at our own places during the day. And we're often on the same video Zoom call. Sex is good. uh, And lately, we've been exploring more with anal. I'm trying to get used to it by playing more on my own with butt plugs. The other day, I decided... Uh, to put a butt plug in halfway through the day. I texted my boyfriend and told him that at the end of the day, he could come over and help take it out. He was so turned on. And it was even better because we had several video calls that we were both on. And he could see my face and imagine me with my plug in just waiting for him. It made those long, boring meetings feel really a lot more fun because as they dragged on, It just heightened both of our anticipation. Obviously, the sex we had when he finally did come over was fabulous. Thank you for calling and sharing. I endorse everything about this adventure, except for letting someone else remove a butt plug that's been in your ass all day long. I think that's something you might want to do alone. You say you're just beginning to explore anal. Maybe you don't have much experience with anal. Maybe a poopy plug isn't going to be an issue for you guys, but it's going to be an issue for most people. And if you leave a plug in all day long and you're sitting on it at work and vibrating it during meetings, the odds that it isn't going to be sparkling clean when it comes out seven or eight hours later, pretty high. So yeah, I endorse this entire adventure 
except that one detail. You might want to remove that plug all by yourself alone in the bathroom when the time comes. We welcome your sex success stories and quarantine sex stories. If you want to share, we've been really enjoying opening every week's show with a success story before we get to the problems, which is what we're going to get to right now. Hi, Dan. So I've had a lot of sex, definitely more than the, I think it's like 14 or whatever average that is reported. I don't know how accurate that statistic is. And it's it's mostly been with guys because women terrify me. Um, but the thing is, I'm really not attracted to guys at all, really. There's There's been like five guys that I've slept with that I thought like, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I, I only dated like, I think two of them and all the other people, all the other guys I've dated, like, I just wasn't attracted to them. Um, and I just sort of like closed my eyes and pretended they were Orlando Bloom as an elf. I'm turning 25 this year and I've realized like, I, I just have to get over my fear of women because I'm, I just, women are gorgeous um, and exciting and soft and beautiful and like all those wonderful I mean just I'm sure men are too for people that are more straight than me um (laughs) I just can't I literally can't even talk to girls that I like um it's awful it's it's so embarrassing I get I start stuttering oh god it's awful (laughs) the only sex I've had with women was in threesomes with a male partner and I just I feel I kind of feel like that doesn't even really count almost what are some things you suggest to help me not be so afraid so I can start having sex with people that I am actually attracted to. I have this exact same problem. I am, I literally can't talk to guys that I think are super hot or guys that I like. I used to get feedback. I'd ask my friends for feedback about, you know, why we would go out and they could flirt and pick up guys and, you know, guys that I thought were cute stayed away from me. And they told me it was because I looked at the guys I thought were cute, like I was going to kill them or they were going to kill me. And it wasn't very inviting. And in the end, I only met my husband because somebody forced me to talk to him. Somebody had been telling all night long how hot that guy was on the other side of the room. That guy walked over to where we were and my friend said, tell him, tell him, tell him what you've been telling me. Stop telling me how pretty he is. Tell him. And that's what I did. So you might want to get some wingmen like my friend Ginger Vitus, the drag queen who engineered the introduction of Dan and Terry. But you also might want to just push yourself outside your comfort zone. So it sounds like you're reaching that tipping point where what you want, you want so badly that what you fear, which is most likely rejection and the higher stakes of actually hitting on people you're attracted to, because what if they don't want you back? And that's going to suck. But you need to embrace that and get past it. And that's just part of it, what you fear is going to seem smaller in comparison to what you want. And you're going to start taking those risks. Luckily for you, the internet exists. Online dating apps exist. I hear there are lots of lesbians on Tinder and Too Many Fish and OkCupid. Put yourself out there and those very first interactions you might have with someone who is attracted to your profile, attracted to your accurate and recent profile photos will be mediated through the computer and you can be as nervous as you want to be as you compose that message back or you send that first message. And I, you know, if I were your friend, I would sit down with you at the computer and I am your friend. I'm just not the friend in the room who can sit down with you at the computer, but I would sit there at the computer with you 
and make you look at profiles and then make you send some messages just so you could see what that felt like. Get outside your comfort zone. And yeah, some people won't respond and you just have to take that in stride and you need to keep that in perspective. It's just like when people went to bars before the internet was a thing and they would check people out on the other side of the room and then that person wouldn't check them out back and then they just turn their gaze elsewhere and keep checking people out until somebody else checked them out and then walk up and say hi to that person or wait for that person to walk up and say hi to you. Same thing happens on the internet. But of course, you've made that small investment. You'd send a message and then you don't get a message back and it sucks a little bit more, but you get used to it. And then the messages you do get back, the responses you do get make, the pain you endured when someone didn't respond to your first message, worth it and bearable. So you know what you want. You are scared. It's been easier for you to date men because the stakes were lower. It sounds like you intentionally sought out men that you weren't that attracted to, not because there aren't attractive men in the world. Maybe some of the men you dated were objectively attractive or conventionally attractive. You're just not into guys. All right. Stop fucking around with guys. Stop dating guys until they engineer three ways with the women you'd rather be sleeping with and throw yourself in front of those women. Get out there. Push yourself. There's no easy answer. There's no way to make this a little less scary than, of course, it's going to feel. You'll just get better at it in time. And right now, while we're all social distancing, while more and more people are going online to make those first contacts and then work their way up to that first socially distanced date, you have the advantage because the person on the other end of that first interaction, they can't see how nervous you actually are. Hi, Dan. I'm with a friend and we're just kind of trying to understand um, something that's going on with some of our friends. I have a very dear friend whose wedding I went to last year uh, who uh, I've had issues with in the past, but like I became very close with again and I was at her wedding and I spoke at her wedding and and now she is she her her wife is very much devoted to her and they've had talks about non-monogamy but nothing has been like set in stone they they're interested in it as a couple but nothing's been set in stone but basically she has started having sex with my long-term very good friend like 10-year good friend cheating on her wife and they've been doing it like very blatantly they live in a different city now but she'll come into town to have sex with her and she'll meet her in other towns and everything like that. And I guess I'm just confused because I don't know what I'm supposed to feel or do or think about this because I'm kind of disgusted. Like I was at your wedding. I spoke at your wedding about how great your wife is. And now you're just cheating on her right and left. And your justification is that you don't want to be in a monogamous relationship. But your wife thinks you are. So that's the main problem and I'm just it's just really hurting me and weighing on me in a way that I have not expected it to. So the woman who's cheating is your friend. She's the reason you spoke at that wedding. She's your connection to her spouse was through this person, your friend, who's doing the cheating, who's coming to the town where they used to live, you still live and fucking this other woman and doing it in kind of a blatant way so Lots of other women, probably men in their community, know what's going on. And the person who doesn't know what's going on right now 
is the spouse, who may have some inkling, you say that they've had these conversations about non-monogamy, you seem to be privy to a lot of the inner workings of your friend's marriage, of their relationship. So it seems to me that you are in a position to go to your friend and ask her what she's doing. Maybe you have the duty to warn right now, not warn her spouse that your friend is cheating on her, but warn your friend that she's being so indiscreet and and so reckless that this is inevitably, invariably going to get back to her spouse. And what then? What is she thinking? Is she slamming her hand down on the self-destruct button? Does she want out of this marriage? Is she going to, you know, what's the plan? Is the plan to get caught cheating and then try to reverse engineer the open marriage agreement that she would have preferred in the emotional wreckage of the exposure of that affair? What is your friend thinking? It's possible your friend isn't thinking. And perhaps you confronting her, asking her some questions, gaming out how this affair is likely to play out emotionally and in divorce court if she doesn't at least try to get her wife on the same page about an ethical non-monogamous relationship as opposed to what they're doing now. That conversation, those questions you put to your friend, could resolve your conflict, which I think is a little overblown. You really aren't implicated in this. I know that when people find out or realize that somebody that they know, maybe whose wedding that they spoke at, is having an affair, they can feel complicit in the infidelity. And if the infidelity is exposed and the person who's being cheated on finds out that you knew, particularly if you're that person's close friend, you can feel like kind of an accomplice after the fact. I don't think that's relevant or germane here. I don't think that you really are going to be an accomplice after the fact. You aren't the spouse's friend. You're the cheater's friend. And so I think your allegiance, your duty, your responsibility, if you want to take this on and it's optional, you don't have to involve yourself in your friend's marriage in this way. But if you want to take it on, that's what you do. You do what I've already told you to do. You go to your friend and say, what the fuck are you thinking? What are you doing? And it's possible that there have been further developments, that you are making assumptions about your friend's marriage that are no longer accurate. Maybe they've had a conversation about non-monogamy that ended with, you know what, DADT, you can do what you want. I just don't want to know about it. Let me live in a little bubble where I can delude myself to think that we are actually both monogamous. And if that's the case, okay, well, then problem solved. And what you need to tell your friend is, She's telling on herself. She's telling her partner by being so reckless and so blatant that all everybody in town knows about this affair. And that kind of indiscretion, although not a verbal tell, is a tell. And if they have a DADT thing, she needs to be more discreet to honor the DADT agreement that she has. But after you've had that conversation with your friend about what she is doing, you're going to need to butt the fuck out. It's really not your business. Hey, Dan, 30-year-old, uh, uh, East Coast, straight male. This uh, really cool girl before COVID in a, in a class, language class I was taking. Seemed like we were kind of clicking. Uh, we met a few times outside of class. Maybe things were going in a certain direction. At least it felt that way. And then COVID hit. And ever since, we've been social distancing, right? So since then, we you know we talk a lot on Instagram. We have like um, FaceTime conversations. And things go pretty well. I have kind of like, I think dropped a few innuendos, not sexual, but 
you know, kind of like flirtatious and they ended up being well received, but I would say the response was kind of tepid at best. It wasn't like what I was anticipating or hoping for. So in any case, this has been going on for a while. Obviously we've been locked down for a while and I'm at the point where I really want to fight figure out where this is going, whether this is just going to be a friendship, which is fine. I mean, worst comes to worst, but it's still fine. Or whether this is going to be romantic, which is the ideal scenario for me. So my question for you is, should I, A, just like straight up ask her maybe the next time we have a FaceTime, you know, like let her know my intentions, let her know what I'm interested in, and see if she is on the same page, right? Uh, or should I, B, not say anything now and maybe wait for the lockdown restrictions to pass so that we can meet, meet up in person more often and see if something develops that way? Or C, I don't know, just like do nothing. I'm a fan of the direct question. So A sort of appeals to me. But really, B could also work. You know, it may be that your friend is, uh, that this woman that you met in a language class is really stressed out right now and not thinking romantically. The studies of, of people's sexual activities or sexual interests at this moment have shown that roughly half of us are experiencing a kind of uh, tanking of the libido because of the COVID crisis and this concurrent stupidity crisis. And a lot of people are just sort of not up for anything or anyone right now. And it wouldn't necessarily be about you. So asking the question, hey, would you be interested? You might get an answer from her that's the truth at this moment. And that kind of locks you out permanently because you called the question a little too soon. Or you called the question at a moment where she was just feeling sexually and emotionally and romantically disconnected from the world. And then you may, by dint of having asked the question, have ruled yourself out when her libido and you know interest in a romantic connection kicks back in. You will be this guy that she already kind of rejected. And you know there's a chance then when she if this is what's going on with her, and I'm just speculating, which is all I can really do sometimes, that because she already said no to you, you won't be considered as a romantic possibility. Whereas if you continue to engage with her in a, the casual way, it seems that she enjoys engaging with you now. And if her libido and interest in romance is really tanked right now because of the political and viral situation, when it kicks back into gear, she may see you with fresh eyes. And that may be the right time to ask the question or gauge her interests. But eventually you're going to have to ask the direct question. You really can't. So many people think they can just kind of insinuate themselves into someone's life as a romantic partner. No, at some point you do have to go for option A, the direct question. It's just, is this the right point? And I would advise you, and you asked for my advice, I would advise you, no, maybe this is not the right point. It may be that she seems lukewarm right now because she is lukewarm to the world and to all people, all romantic possibilities because she's like so many of us kind of shut down or it may be about you, but she's still engaging with you. You're still having these FaceTime conversations. You're having these chatty exchanges on Instagram. Ask yourself honestly, if you are always the initiator of these conversations on Instagram or these, you know, moments when you reach out on Facebook messenger or whatever. And if you are always the instigator, well, that may be a sign that she's just humoring you or just engaging with you to pass the time when you reach out to her and there is no interest. But if there is sort of mutual 
engagement on Instagram, if she DMs you, you know, about as often as you DM her and you to initiate one of these conversations, all right, just wait, just be chill. Don't be another pressure point in her life right now when all of us are under so much pressure. And then when you can get together, when it feels better to have a socially distanced date and you can actually do that right now, you can go to the park. It's summer. It's safer to be outside than inside. And you can go for a walk with someone from six feet away and have a conversation, masks on. So you could do that now. But when you're ready to do that, maybe the lockdown where you're at is a little bit more restrictive than lockdowns right now where I'm at. When the time comes that you can do that, you can better gauge your interest. And then after temporarily going for option B, you can shift to option A and then ask her if she's interested in you the same way you're interested in her, which you will be clear is a romantic interest. Hey, Dan, this is a 30-year-old straight cis male calling. Um, I'm in an open relationship and um, had a question about one of the things that turns on my partner And it's that when we're having sex and she's about to orgasm, she starts to imagine herself as being a gay man that's like getting fucked by a man. And it hasn't caused any issues. Like we still have really great sex. And and we've talked about, you know, I've asked her if she's trans or or feels like she might be non-binary or something other than female identifying. And um, she's assured me that, she's not trans and that she feels very comfortable and confident as a woman. And anyways, yeah, it's not, it has not caused any issues for us. Um, It's just, it's not necessarily like a thing that I picture when we're having sex and it's not necessarily a thing that like turns me on. Maybe the solution is just being okay with that. We're sort of getting off on different things at the same time. Um, but have you ever heard of this type of turn on? And if so I'd, I'd love to hear more about it. And if there are like other women out there that picture themselves in that way when they're having sex. There are lots of women out there who fantasize about being uh, gay, being gay men, being, you know, half of the gay couple having the gay sex. Somebody is writing all that slash fiction that's all over the Internet. And most of those somebodies, the overwhelming majority of the authors of Slash fiction are women who fantasize about gay men, gay male relationships and feel empowered somehow about inhabiting that sort of space, the, the, the gay male space to, you know, be a man, have male privilege, male entitlement to, uh, to pleasure and still be, I guess, the one getting fucked or sometimes the one doing the fucking. Lots of lesbians watch gay porn, lots of straight women watch gay porn and project themselves into the experiences of one of the dudes or sometimes both of the dudes or jumping back and forth between the dudes. So your girlfriend isn't that rare and this isn't unheard of. And not everyone with these fantasies is non-binary. I would say only a tiny percentage of people with women with these fantasies are non-binary or ultimately trans. So I, I want you to relax and accept your girlfriend's truth. Believe what she's telling you. Take that no, I'm not for an answer. That said, you, you know, the issue here, and I wish you'd left a callback number because I would call you back and ask this follow-up question, which I think is really relevant. Is she verbalizing these fantasies? You sound a little put off by them. And I could understand how in the moment, you know, you're straight and you're interested in her, you're tra- heterosexual, you're attracted to 
um, this member of the opposite sex that you're in this committed romantic relationship with. And if she's verbalizing these fantasies about it being, you know, her hairy man ass you're fucking right before she comes and right before you're going to try to come if you're going for the simultaneous orgasm brass ring, which I don't always recommend. But if she's verbalizing these fantasies or expecting you to engage with her and contribute to spinning out this fantasy about how she's a dude and her clit is a dick and you guys are both men having man sex, man on man sex, I could see why that would be a big ask on her part. Maybe somewhere you could go every once in a while, but something that would, if it doesn't turn you on, be a distraction and perhaps a libido, if not killer, libido take the edge off her, maybe libido gradually tank her if she's expecting you to play along. But if this is just somewhere she goes in her mind and she's shared that with you, that sometimes when she's approaching orgasm, it helps for her to like imagine herself as a man as a gay man, because she's always watched a lot of gay porn. She loves how sort of enthusiastic, you know, the gay bottoms are in the gay porn. She imagines herself as a power bottom. There's something about visualizing that externalized evidence of orgasm, you know, the ejaculation that helps her get there for her mostly internal orgasm. Yeah, that makes total sense. And if she's not expecting you to spin that out with her, literally nothing's being asked of you then, except not to police what's going on between your girlfriend's ears at the moment of orgasm, which is a wasted effort because you can't police what's going on between someone's ears at the moment of orgasm. But you don't have to engage with her or anyone who wants to spin out a fantasy while having sex with you that turns you off. I don't want to say a fantasy that you don't share because sometimes you can spin out a fantasy with somebody. You can dirty talk with somebody. It's not your thing, but you can see how it's cranking them up and it doesn't turn you off. And even the cranking them up part actually kind of does turn you on. If the fantasy itself doesn't, you should totally go there then. But if their fantasy kind of erases or negates you or your gender identity or your sexual orientation in a way that's a turnoff for you, it's a big ask. It's probably an unfair ask, probably something she shouldn't expect from you unless you can scrape it up every once in a while to do it for her as a treat. Hey, Dan. So here's the deal. I'm a cis female with a super high sex drive. I've sex since January due to a long distance relationship I was in. Then COVID hit and fucked it all up. I've never been more clear in my need for physical intimacy, and I'm literally crawling out of my skin. So I'm calling with a bit of a nuanced question. I'm a recent transplant to a major West Coast city where I'm working in academia. I don't want to expose myself because I don't want to put my, my professional career at risk. I'm also sort of potting with some new friends, a couple of whom are colleagues, and I don't want to expose to COVID by introducing a random person who I don't know into our orbit. I've been trying to be quite COVID safe, and I thought about asking some friends for any connections to people who are engaging similarly in the world right now. But that said, I honestly have so few friends out here right now, and those that I do that are either gay or in my professional world that I don't think it'd be much help. So after talking with one of these new friends, I got the contact for a sex group in the area. However, I used my actual email to contact them. I freaked out when I realized what I did because I seriously can't lose my job. So the first question I have is this. How can I further vet these groups on my own before showing up in person? Will they have some sort of confidentiality screening? This one didn't when I signed up, but I'm really not sure what to expect. So all this to say, Dan, listen. Number one, I need to have sex. Number two, I don't know how to go about this process without having to stress about my job, but also while still prioritizing my sexual and emotional health. Three, how can I find someone who's reliable and trustworthy enough and who's on the same page with me regarding my COVID status so I don't have to feel guilty about exposing my new friends to a misjudgment? Help, 
this is not a normal time for online dating, right? How can I vet someone for an actual emotional connection, sexual attraction, COVID compatibility, and take care of myself professionally? I seriously can't be the only person in this situation, especially not in this area. COVID sucks. So does our sex negative culture. And my double can only deal with so many battery replacements. What area are you in? Where are you going to school? Lynchburg, Virginia, Greenville, South Carolina, Provo, Utah, the homes respectively of Liberty University, Bob Jones University and Brigham Young University. Where are you going to school that you dating as most people these days date? Vast majority of same sex couples meet online. The plurality, more straight couples meet online than through any other method. Where are you going that you're going to get, you're going to ruin your academic career and potentially your career career if you get outed as someone who is like everybody else who's single or most everybody else is single, seeking a romantic partner? If you are going to school in Lynchburg, Greenville, or Provo, you might want to transfer if you want to be able to prioritize your sex life. If you are in some field where you being a a woman who's interested in finding a dude who wants to put his penis in her is going to destroy you professionally and academically, you might want to find some other field to go in because you can't prioritize your romantic and sex life if you're choosing to, to go into some field or go to school in some place where it would be ruinous for people to find that the fuck out. Look, you got to take some risks, but you should know that you are only taking the risks that most other people your age and older and younger are taking. They're putting themselves out there. They're using their email addresses. They're getting online. They're posting their photos. This is no longer a crazily stigmatized activity. And there are a lot of crazy ass sex clubs in the world. There are a lot of swingers clubs and sex events. And there usually isn't. There aren't a lot of people who are outed or exposed for having gone to these things. And if you run into somebody from your program or your school or your workplace at a swingers event or a fetish club, well then mutual assured destruction kicks in. You're both there. You smile and nod at each other from across the room. And in that smile and that nod, if you don't speak to each other about it, in that smile and the nod implied is an agreement to keep each other's secret. And I won't gossip about you. You don't gossip about me. You don't rat me out to the new president of Liberty University, whoever that might turn out to be. And I won't rat you out to that motherfucker either. But there is no reward without some risk. And what you're asking me is to, you know, game out a path to dick for you where there's no risk of anybody that you are associated with professionally or academically ever finding out that you had desire for dick and where there is no risk for COVID and there is no risk-free sex life. Risk is just shot through the entire process. It's shot through the entire experience. It's shot through the entire human experience in, in all realms, romantic and non-romantic. So you have to get comfortable with the degree of risk that you're willing to shoulder, to take on, to get what you want. And if you aren't comfortable with any risk at all and you're going to have a panic attack if you have, use your real email by accident, well, then you shouldn't seek sex or romantic partners. You should be, you should continue to be celibate as you have been celibate for the last six months or so since COVID struck. Doesn't sound like you're happy celibate though. You wouldn't be calling me if you're happy celibate. So you're going to need to minimize or mitigate the risks and then be realistic about the potential consequences. Somebody from your program sees your ad 
on Tinder. Well, that means they were on Tinder too. Maybe they'll show it to somebody else in your program. How terrible is that? Unless there's something about your program where you're not allowed to be on Tinder or date or seek dick, what consequences will there be if some people that you happen to go to school with run across your online personal ad? Probably none. There could even be a beneficial consequence. Maybe, you know, word will spread that you're on Tinder and somebody who's interested in you that you are also interested in will get on Tinder or whatever other dating app that you decide to risk it all by being on and seek you out. And you two can connect. As for minimizing your COVID risk, it's the same as the way everyone else can minimize their COVID risks. Get to know somebody from a distance. Online is a great way to maintain social distance or physical distance while still getting to know someone, have those first meetings in public, outside, much safer, wear masks, chit chat, and then assess their degree of exposure. How many people they're in regular contact with, how safe their roommates or housemates are being if they live with other people, how safe they're being. And if they're going to fucking motorcycle rallies and taking unreasonable risks, packing into bars going to pool parties or private house parties. Yeah, don't fuck that person. But if they're being as safe and as reasonable uh, about safety as hopefully you're being or maybe being a little bit unreasonable about safety, it sounds like you might be a little over the top about safety, then you can fuck them. And if anybody has a problem with it, with you fucking that person, fuck them. Figuratively, not literally. Just tell them to fuck the fuck off. But yeah, dick's great. There's no dick without risk. So if you want dick, you have to take on some risk. Hi, Dan. I'm a 39-year-old cis woman, deliberately childless, and I have a question for one of your guest experts. Since I became sexually active in my early 20s, I've found penetrative sex from rear-facing positions like doggy style or reverse cowgirl to be uncomfortable to mildly painful, while sex in forward-facing positions is generally fabulous. I sort of assumed this was normal until a number of years ago when I was reading your column and a guy wrote in saying his girlfriend refused doggy style. You said a bunch of stuff, like maybe it was psychological, and left it at that. I eagerly dove to the comments section, ready for someone with a vagina to set you straight, and I was shocked to find that everyone was saying it was their favorite position. Only towards the bottom did somebody mention that for some women it could be painful and something about uterus position. I googled a bit, but at the time only found message boards. I've been meaning to call you ever since. Recently, I was reading another column, and someone had the same issue. The columnist mentioned that apparently 20 to 30% of women have a retroverted or tipped uterus and linked to a couple of articles. Besides painful sex in certain positions, the article mentioned that period cramps can be felt as backaches instead of stomach aches, which has been my experience since I first got my period when I was 12. In fact, I've always wondered why women talked about using heating pads on their stomachs. Uh, a gynecologist had never mentioned this to me, so I'm not 100% sure I have one. Internet research has only confused me, since if I have one, it's probably genetic, and it hasn't been problematic, except for the sex positions. Meanwhile, half the articles I've read talk about hysterectomies as a possible option, so clearly this can be a problem for some women. I would love to hear a guest ex expert talk about this, especially since a large percentage of women might have one. There is no better guest expert to talk about uteruses, tipped and otherwise, than Dr. Jen Gunter, Bay Area OBGYN, author of The Vagina Bible and frequent Lovecast guest. Hey, Dr. Gunter, how are you doing? 
Pretty good, thank you. How are you doing? Uh, I- I'm okay. So, uh, a tipped uterus, as opposed to, I guess, a salaried uterus, haha, is that a thing? <laughs> a tipped uterus? Well, it is and it isn't. So, about 25% or 20% of women have what's called a retroverted uterus, meaning it's tipped a little bit to the back. The more common is tipped to the front or sort of straight up and down. It's a bit like some people are tall, some people are short, some people are in between. And it's not a medical abnormality. It's also not a cause of pain with sex per se. However, if a retroverted uterus, one that's tipped to the back, somehow gets scarred down behind the vagina or up at the top of the vagina, then that can cause painless sex for some women. And that you're saying pain with sex, not painless sex, pain with sex. Right. Pain with sex, right? So with deep penetration, you know, sort of pushing on sort of where the uterus is kind of scarred. So it's not really the retroverted uterus that's causing the problem. It's really the scarring um, with it. So I didn't know about retroverted uteruses or didn't have that that language. But we have talked for a long time about, you know, two people have to find the angle that works for them. And not every position right. works for every couple, you know, it may not be comfortable for, you know, if it's an opposite sex couple may not be comfortable for her. It may not be the right angle for him to provide, you know, the sensation he needs on his dick to, to, to get to climax if that's the goal at that moment. And so a couple has to like experiment in a position that worked for you previously with a previous partner might not work with a future partner, work with you and that future partner. And is that sort of implicitly an acknowledgement that's of the retroverted uterus game? I don't think that's particularly related to whether the uterus is retroverted, although if you've got scarring at the top of the vagina, it's certainly possible that with one partner or with other part- variety of other partners, you never actually hit that spot, mm-hmm. and then with this person, you do. So that's certainly a possibility. It's also possible, you know, some women don't like having their cervix hit during intercourse. Some women love it. Some people hate it. And so that's also a possibility that, you know, with certain angles with certain people just don't work for a variety of reasons that are hard to say. Um, It's also possible with one person, you know, kind of in a position for the way you have to hold yourself, you could have to tense your muscles a little bit differently. And that could also be the cause of pain with deep thrusting. So it may not be related to any scarring around the uterus at all, but but um, a muscle pain problem. And we want to always emphasize when we talk about finding the right angle, it's not finding the magic angle at which a woman can climax during vaginal penetration alone. Often it's the right angle that allows a woman to either get a grind on that provides clitoral stimulation or touch herself or be touched, have her clitoris stimulated during sex, a position that allows for that. And for many women, that is doggy style because the guy can be behind you and you can have a hand up on your own clit while you're getting fucked. Not to get too graphic, but that's my show. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gives you gives you at least one hand to kind of play with. So um, roam around, touch whatever you want, your partner, reach behind and grab them, you. So yeah, so a lot of women love that position, you know. Everybody likes different positions, and sometimes in different moments, different positions are what turn you on. So, the, so that's also an important. The thing. caller mentioned that some people who have a, a tipped or retroverted uterus have been advised to get hysterectomies, but that would be then about scarring or some other dysfunction. Yeah, I think that's incomplete information. So that would be the kind of thing that I would, you know, not believe if I read that online that, you know, that, um, that the the need for the hysterectomy was a retroverted uterus. That's, 
that wouldn't be a reason for a hysterectomy. Uh, sometimes physicians do a really poor job explaining to patients, and so the patient might have been led to believe that was the reason. Um, so, so it's always hard to know sort of with sort of second or third hand information online, but, but a retroverted uterus would not be what leads to a hysterectomy. If you have really bad scarring from your uterus to the top of your vagina, most commonly from an endometriosis, which is where tissue similar to the lining of the uterus grows in the pelvic cavity, then a hysterectomy may end up being one of the answers for some women. Um, but but the actual sort of slightly tipped uterus would not be the cause and so so, or the need for surgery. And just so I'm clear, the slightly tipped uterus is a natural variation. It's not a pathology. It's not a problem. Correct? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Can we uh, ask you to hang on the line for a couple other vagina-related questions? You got it. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a question about premenstrual dysphoric disorder. This is a term that I became aware about a few years ago, and I honestly thought that it, I just hated every dude I dated, <laughs> but it just turns out that whenever I date someone for a while, I just start to be super annoyed at them, but only right before my period starts. The week before my period starts, I fucking hate them. And I've been dating this dude for almost two years, and I haven't been that annoyed with him until recently, and I'm starting to realize that it is a problem. It is a problem. Like, I get, I get super painful, you know, it's the regular PMS things, but that PMDD that you don't deal with hormones as well, I just, I haven't ever heard you address that, and I'm really curious what you have to say about that, Dan. All right, I'm just going to set this one down in front of you and back slowly away. Well, so, you know, so PMS, premenstrual syndrome, is is a real condition, and that's, you know, food cravings and bloating and fatigue and mood swings and irritability. PMDD is a far more severe form of the condition, and it's diagnosed maybe in 3 to 5% of women. And that's when symptoms, um, you know, specifically, you know, maybe mood swings, irritability and depression, um, you know, or other symptoms are interfering with work, school, social activities or relationships. So it would be a little unusual for PMDD to only manifest itself with one specific, you know, relationship. So I would, you know, want to know from that person, you know, if they were experiencing problems in multiple domains during that time or, or just with one person. Mm-hmm. But it's a thing. It's an absolute thing. It's an absolute diagnosis. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it actually can respond to a variety of different antidepressants. Some women can do uh, well with, um, for, you know, control of their hormonal fluctuation, you know, with something like hormonal contraception. But certainly, you know, I would want someone like that to see her physician and get a formal diagnosis um, and, you know, get screened for depression as well uh, and, uh, and then go from there. So if you were the partner of someone who had PMDD or you suspect it might, how do you address that? Because it's not okay to say to a woman who's angry and may have absolute cause to be angry and has a right to express herself when she's angry. Is it your time of the month? Are you on your period? These are things that men have been told they're not allowed to say to their female partners. But in 3 to 5% of women, that could be an issue that needs to be addressed if the woman was unaware of it. But how likely would it be that the woman was unaware of it if this was a condition she suffered from? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's part of this problem that you have no idea how many other relationship issues there could be. And so I think the instead of saying, you know, I think I think there's a problem related to your menstrual cycle, I think the, the question would be to step back and say, hey, we seem to be having some relationship difficulties. Can we talk about that? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then go from there um, and then see what happens. And, and maybe the answer is to see a therapist if this is a relationship that's worth investing in. Um, you know, so I think, but I think the answer is sort of to step back and say, um, you know, in all relationship problems to not sort of point the blame on one person and to step back and say, hey, we seem to be having some kind of issue here. Can we sit down and talk about and it? To identify all the patterns, which means then not just the timing of perhaps right. this anger, but also there may be a root cause, you know, might be something that's setting your partner off at this particular time in the month for her. That is something that's legitimately upsetting. She just gets more upset about it at those moments. So you could work on both maybe. Right. And it's also, yes, it's also entirely possible that, you know, there's other sort of structural relationship problems that, um, you know, that, you know, settle down for a while and are frequently sort of rearing their head, you know, because often these relationship problems come in cycles. And so it's also possible that it's just purely coincidence that she's noticing them at that time. And so I think that, uh, you know, a physician can certainly screen someone for PMDD uh, and talk to them about that and see if that's a diagnosis. And then, um, and then if there's relationship problems, I think that seeing somebody about your relationship problem and then, you know, perhaps having that professional try to either link those two together or not. Right. Because something could be setting her off during when she's suffering from PMDD. That's legitimately upsetting. She's just having a harder time regulating her anger when she's suffering from PMDD. Absolutely. You know, maybe she's putting up with something, you know, and her, her ability to put up with that is slightly lowered during this time. Um, so there could be many different, you know, permutations and combinations of what's going on. And are there treatments for this that are effective? What's the, yeah, what I mean, the doctor's office with? Well, so first of all, you know, recognizing that that's what's happening. So PMDD is, you know, is a far more serious form. Uh, and uh, in, you know, people who have milder symptoms sometimes can respond to some dietary changes. Um, you know, some studies have linked alcohol with PMS and with PMDD. So, you know, cutting back on alcohol, you know, during that time, the second half of the cycle is also something to think about. Um, you know, there aren't really any good links between, you know, caffeine or PMS. Um, smoking um, is also also, if someone smokes, they might want to cut back on that. It's linked. Um, regular exercise can be helpful. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful. Um, antidepressants can also be helpful and oral contraceptive pills. So there's a variety of things people can do from, you know, low intervention to extreme intervention. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old female from the Pacific Northwest calling with a question that I hope you or one of your doctor friends can help me answer. So the lips of my labia sometimes get itchy, like all places on the body, but I noticed that when I scratch them gently, that the scratching correlates with a fluttering sensation that's in my inner ear, but it only seems to be in my left inner ear and not my right. Have any idea why this happens or what's going on? Is this just some weird thing that happens to just me? Let me know. Thanks. Okay, I, well, I imagine that if this was a common thing, I would have heard about it sometime in the last 30 years. So I'm going to say I've never heard it either. And I talk to women about, you know, sex and labias pretty much every single day. Um, but, you know, I think that we're all wired very differently. And there's all kinds of intimate connections. I mean, the, 
the way the pelvis is innervated is so fascinating because a lot of the um, the signals, you know, cross from one side to the other. There's all kinds of shared connections, which is one part of how our nervous system works, but two to also withstand, you know, injury from childbirth. If you sort of, you know, have an injury to one side, the other side's actually able to sometimes pick up from a wiring standpoint. So, you know, with all these shared connections, it's certainly possible that one person can have a little bit of a, you know, kind of a a glitch. I hate to call it that because I mean there's something wrong. But, you know, kind of where the electricity from from, you know, one touch is actually then stimulating a different part of the brain. So so I I I is it common? No. Um but is it possible? Sure. And it's just a unique little superpower and something to perhaps enjoy yeah. and not to worry about. Yeah, yeah. I mean the you know, in general the areas in the brain that respond to touch from the the you know, the labia and the ear are really far apart, actually. But, you know, like I said, everybody's brain is a little bit different. We all have slightly different wiring and you know, that's why some people love the feel of one touch sexually and another person is like, Oh my god, that's so gross. I, I like how do you even like that? You know, we all have such different wiring. So, so yeah, anything's possible, I would say. And it's not like we've never heard of the ear as an erogenous zone before. There are lots of people who, if you nuzzle their neck and kiss and bite their ear, even put your tongue into their ear canal, they get incredibly aroused. They're, you know, they get hard or they get super wet. Like it just works for them and hits the nerves kind of running the opposite direction. So we're familiar with this connection between ear and junk, just it's usually the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, speaking of differences, that's one of the things that makes me like, oh, you know. So we all have like, you know, like as in, no, like oh, don't wait, touch I my ear. Tell if that was a good it. O or a bad O. No, it's a horrible O. Like as in <laughs> crossing my legs, everything drying up. It's now the Sahara Desert. <laughs> I will make a note of that for the next time we have lunch, not to nuzzle your ear. I hope I didn't do that last time we had lunch. I'd be very embarrassed. Now. <laughs> But so, yeah, absolutely. And it's really fascinating because when you stimulate, you know, basically any erogenous zone um, in the in a, the female body, the part of the brain that lights up is the part that the clitoris innervates. So there's all kinds of intricate shared wiring. So I think it's super fascinating and it's very interesting. Uh, and uh, But I wouldn't worry about it. It's funny. Like, I, I hate to, to, to dwell on this, um, but whatever. We have time to kill. It's a pandemic. We're all in quarantine. <laughs> Um, people talk about their nipples, particularly like gay men talk about their nipples and whether they're wired or not. That if you stimulate, mm-hmm. you know, some dude's nipples, does that like zap his dick? Does that like run down to the dick and turn him on? And I, I just think that terminology, that phrasing of it is just kind of revealing because it is about neural wiring, neural pathways. It is about nerves and electricity, mm-hmm. literal wires in a way, in a sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you think about like, um, I, you know, I would tell people to, you know, think about their, their sort of body, the way their body is wired as like a, you know, like a fuse box and wiring and a light bulb. And, you know, you can turn the light on in a room often with several different switches, right? Um, it's just which direction is the electricity flowing. But if you go back to the fuse box, all those wires eventually lead to the same like wire coming to your house. So, yeah, you can turn a light on in a room a lot of different ways, just like you can light yourself up in a lot of different ways. But the connections, the closer you get back to the brain, all start to, you know, get closer and closer together. 
Dr. Jen Gunter, Bay Area OBGYN, author of the Vagina Bible, contributor to the New York Times, and most prestigious of all, author of the best-selling Vagina Bible, but most prestigious <laughs> of all, frequent Savage Lovecast guest. Thank you for jumping on the phone. Oh, my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for asking. It's always just a, a joy to, to speak with you about these things, and I really appreciate it. Thanks. Hi, Dan. 27-year-old bi cis woman in the D.C. area. My mom is trying to plan a family gathering slash birthday party for my grand, who is turning 80 next month. I am very hesitant about going down there to visit with my grandparents because obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and I really don't feel comfortable with taking the risks that uh, come along with this whole idea. Part of the reason my mom wants us to go down so badly is because my gran seems to be, her dementia seems to be getting worse. And on top of that, my mom doesn't have a car, so um, if she wants to get down there, either me or my sister need to be able to drive her down there. My mom seems to think that there's some way where you can get a test done quickly and get your results like quickly, but the last time I had to take a test, it took a few days for my results to come back, and it's difficult to plan a trip around stuff like that. And on top of that, I am an essential worker. Um, I can only take so much time off. I'm around a pretty large amount of people on a fairly regular basis, and I just really think this whole thing is a terrible, terrible idea. I would be 100% willing to do this if it were a normal, you know, normal year, no pandemic. And I would also be completely willing to do some kind of video chat with them or something like that. But I really feel very uncomfortable with this whole situation. And my mom is being very insistent. And I would just really appreciate any advice that you could give me. You don't need my advice. You know what you need to do or not do. You definitely don't need, shouldn't. Get in a car with your grandmother and drive her to this ill-advised party that could kill her because your mother is being irrational and selfish. You have my permission to say no to your mother for all of the reasons you cite. It might bring you into conflict with your mother, but you'll just have to face that down. What's the other option? The other option is to do this thing that you know that you shouldn't do. You have an essential job. You're around a lot of people all the time. You've tested. You've been safe, as safe as you possibly can be. And your mother's asking you to get in a car. You may have been exposed or infected after your last test before you get in that car with your grandmother on enclosed space and drive her to this party where she'll be surrounded by other people who, just by showing up at that party, have indicated that they're reckless, that they aren't being safe. If they were cautious and being safe, they wouldn't be at that party. So it's a self-selected group of people that it's, by definition, dangerous for your elderly grandmother to be around. Tell your mom you're not going to be complicit in the accidental murder of your ailing grandmother. And that if she insists on your mom being transported to this party against the best advice of all the epidemiologists and doctors in the world right now, that she will have to make other arrangements because not only won't you be 
driving your grandma to this party, you won't be attending this party and you will be encouraging other people that you know who are on the guest list not to attend because it is a bad idea. And maybe the appeal you could make to your mother is how she will feel. If worst case scenario, which these days isn't, you know, I talk about my worst case scenario disorder. It's not that disorder to anticipate the worst case scenario when the worst case scenario is happening routinely all over the place. We're at 180,000 deaths in the United States from this disease that we know about, documented deaths. There are probably another 100,000 more that we don't know about or have been misattributed. So ask your mom how she will feel if your grandmother, her last moments on earth, her last days are in the hospital after this party that shouldn't have happened at this time, intubated and isolated and alone without anyone at her bedside. Yeah, no. You can tell grandma next year that you're celebrating her 80th birthday on her 81st birthday. And you can tell your mother if she won't listen to you to fuck the fuck off. Tell your mother no. And if she's insistent, she screams and yells, hang the fuck up. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old gay man from uh, Washington, D.C. area. I recently started seeing someone a little over a month ago who was demisexual and never been with a demi guy before. Um, I had a specific sort of question for you about, um, I guess, an area in which this has come up in the relationship. So um, I've been friends with a number of demi people, and they've often talked about difficulty getting over exes, given that they tend to form really strong emotional connections and that that sort of preempts um, physical attraction, you know, breakups from the couple of Demi friends I've talked to can leave them feeling like they won't find someone again. And that it's hard for them to kind of release feelings of attraction to that person. You know, they continue with sort of little bids uh, long into the future to reconnect even in subtle ways, just kind of struggling to cut people out of their lives. And so this guy I'm seeing now, I really, really like he's, he's great in a lot of ways. We've been seeing each other for about a month. I think we have, pretty high degree of um, compatibility. He has um, one previous relationship, one previous serious long-term relationship. Uh, he was with a guy for about two and a half or three years and this guy dumped him over text. I, I can't imagine that this has been anything less than devastating for him. Um, the other day I sent him a song and I think it, the artist reminded him of this person and he kind of mentioned it. He sort of told me a little bit about this. You know, he said it strikes a nerve and he said he, it's hard for him to know what nerves are going to be struck until it happens. Uh, so I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, what do I do here? How, how do I get a true sense of where he's at in terms of feelings with this person? To give you an idea, they broke up around two years ago. I can't relate to this because my three past relationships are generally in the past for me. I don't really seek any connection with these people modern times, nothing is really raw for me. Um, I've had a couple of long, long-term relationships, able to look back on them, you know, within hindsight, fondly, but, but not with the strong, raw emotional connection. It seems like might still exist here in some form. How do I have this conversation with him recognizing that it, his sexual orientation is different from mine and that it informs how he relates to his past? So I, I wanted you to tell me more about this unique thing about demisexuals where they are sad <laughs> after breakups as opposed to everybody else. <laughs> uh, you got me there, didn't you? I, guess. <laughs> I, 
I suppose it was just the time span that gave me pause. Um, it's been a couple of years since, okay. you know, it happened. Well, you've, uh, you've heard the expression carrying a torch, right? Which predates by probably decades, if not centuries, the concept or the label demisexual. People who are or are not demisexuals have been carrying torches for exes out of, you know, after bad or traumatic breakups forever. That also yeah. being sad in the wake of a breakup is not unique to the demis who walk among us, right? Yeah, no, definitely. That's a, yeah, that's a great point. Um, so I, I guess you're right that it's not specific. Yeah. So I, I would just apply to to the situation what I would apply to, to, to you know anybody that you were thinking about dating or getting more involved with after a month. Is this person in good working order? And almost by definition, yeah. someone who is carrying a torch in such a way that the person they're dating now is, you know, confronted with that torch, has to look at that torch, has to have that torch explained to them every time they get together, is not in good enough working order to embark on a new relationship. And that may or may not have anything to do with, you know, how deeply a demisexual feels and the other ways in which <laughs> people talk about this shit to pay themselves compliments and suggest they're more highly evolved or emotionally uh, sensitive right. than others. <laughs> right right yeah i yeah so run the fuck away no that's funny i've gotten opposing advice but <laughs> well, what's the opposing advice who is this person who is this apostate this heretic with the opposing advice <laughs> i don't know a friend that said um you know it's not something that's come up frequently we talk a lot um it's the only time it's come up but at the same time, I don't know, you're right. It suggests there's something raw there and there's some torch carrying going on. So. And, and sometimes you, you do need to, you, you know, as the saying goes, you know, to get over someone, you got to get under someone else. Sometimes you do have to, you know, even while you're still hurting or, you know, you're still carrying that torch, date somebody else. And then, you know, maybe that's what extinguishes that fucking torch to torture the metaphor. Uh, but the, <laughs> but usually if you want to be sensitive to that other person, if you want to give that relationship a chance to actually become the, you know, the relationship you want to be in as opposed to the relationship you're still grieving, having been you know, turfed out of by his ex in that cruel way, you don't tell the person you're dating that you're carrying that torch, that you're super sad, that, that puts that person off and it, you know, it's kind of emotionally manipulative. Yeah. I, I dated a guy um, who did that to me once a million years ago. Like I'll never get over my ex, but I will condescend to date you. Maybe you'll be good enough. And it just put me in this position where I was having, I was like always trying to like be better than his ex, like meet every need. Like it felt like an audition. I never quite got the part. And it created a, you know, gave him power over me in this insidious way where he had kind of, you know, leveraged his vulnerability and his sadness in the wake of that relationship that ended years, actually, also years before we met, to control me. Yeah, it's hard not to feel like a back, a bit of a backup plan in that situation, right? Like they're still kind of holding out on that hope in a sense. It's fine. I don't know. It's fine to be someone's backup plan so long as they have the emotional intelligence not to let you know that that's what they're doing right now. Because sometimes you're the backup plan who becomes the plan that they realize they should have always had. You, you know, you're the backup plan or you're the person they're dating after, you know, the person who broke their heart went away and then they fall in love with you and it grows and grows and grows. And eventually they get to a point where they say, you know what, this is the relationship I want to be in. I didn't realize it at first. And if I'd been deposed or I'd had verbal diarrhea at the start I might have said all the wrong things to this person and made it impossible for me to, you know, for this person to stay, to continue to date me, for this love to grow. 
But that's why it's important sometimes to know not just what to say to someone you're dating, but what not to say to someone you're dating. It's one of the ways that you demonstrate having the emotional intelligence and, and, and the, the good sense and the good judgment to be in a relationship at all. Yeah. It's funny. He was, he did a whole lot of putting his foot in his mouth after that. And I, and I kept saying, you know, no, I'm, I'm, I needed to know this. I was going to figure it out at some point, right. That you have some sort of feelings. And he was like, Oh, usually I don't like to make people uncomfortable, but there wasn't the reassurance that there weren't nerves to be struck. I think is what I said to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, yeah, I guess that's the, the tough part of it, right? You can try to paper over that as much as you want, but if the underlying feelings are there, usually I guess that can, I don't know, leak out in ways like that. Right, and if your self-conception or your ideas about your demisexuality as your sexual orientation, and I kind of don't think it's a sexual orientation, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are gay, straight, or bi, who, you know, for forever, we you know acknowledged that like they couldn't just like hook up. They couldn't have meaningless sex. They couldn't have a one night stand. They had to feel something. This isn't you like right. too terribly unique uh, about, you know, this, the demisexual identity or the branding of it or the, you know, the orientationing of it. Um, lots of people like that are, are out there, but you have to be emotionally present and available for someone that you're dating now. That doesn't mean you have to be fully healed from a traumatic breakup or, you know, hundred percent over your ex, but no one's going to hang out and become, you know, your long-term partner that gets you over your ex. If you're playing these sorts of games or making it a virtue, like, Oh, I feel so deeply because I'm a Demi that I'm never going to get over my ex. Cause I feel differently than, than you non Demis feel. I feel my feelings more in a, you know, intense way it's just it's it's bullshit it, it, it's narcissism sorry i'm so you know i'm gonna get yeah. in trouble i'm gonna get dragged that's what twitter is for and that's what my mouth is for to get me in trouble and get me dragged but it's just a kind of narcissism and it seems emotionally manipulative to me because now you feel like you probably you know it's only been a month and now you feel like you probably can't leave or or, or end it because then you're just going to further traumatize him because he feels you know, I actually don't, I don't actually don't feel that way. Fortunately, I think it would, it just gave me pause to be like, or right, am I setting myself up to be kind of clowned here? And you know what I mean? Um, I don't, I don't have any issue with ending this relationship. If I get a, I don't know. I think I just want a clear sense of what his feelings actually are. Like you're saying, it, um, I think that was a traumatic breakup and I can understand if there are some things there, but I, I don't know. I need to make sure it's an amount that I'm comfortable with and the way that he's engaging with them is also something I'm comfortable well, I, with. I think I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist and I don't want to, you know, project my experience onto you or all people who've, you know, been with somebody who is kind of theatrically and dramatically not over their ex and performatively not over their ex. But what the guy I dated a billion years ago wanted was in a way for me to like make this huge emotional investment in a relationship for me to fall in love with him so that he could break up with me because he wasn't over his ex and to inflict on me in this bank shot way, the pain that he was still experiencing. And it was not good. It was, it was a red flag that I didn't spot. That's, that's a really good point. I I think I've, I, I don't know. I'm a fan of the flag terminology as well i was like i think it's a yellow flag at this point but i want to raise it to him again because i think he was conscious of putting me off and therefore didn't divulge you know the amount that maybe i would honestly would need to know and i don't know i actually well, I might it, see him you know, at a distance later it ultimately but. depends what you want of this relationship like a short-term relationship is a perfectly valid thing 
And, you know, you can press him and depose him and ask him a million questions and try to get clarity. But if all you're interested in is like, he's nice, he's hot, you want to hang out for a while, you enjoy spending time with him when he's not mewling about his ex, that's legitimate. And you can go into it, you know, if you go into it with, you know, not the expectation that there's going to be, you know, a long-term commitment or a transcendent love for the ages – uh, then you're unlikely to get hurt. And th- that's a legitimate thing to get out of it. And maybe then you'll be one of the people who helped him get over his ex by being a transitional figure, sexually and emotionally in his life. And that's that could be, you know, a mission of mercy and you'll get some blowjobs out of it. But if you go into it hoping that you might be the one when he's still mewling about his ex and attributing it to something he can't help because he's a demi and he'll always feel feelings more intensely than the muggles feel feelings – yeah, that would be a bad idea. But if you just want someone to spend some COVID time with and get some blowjobs out of and you, you enjoy each other and there's no promises you can't keep and promises he can't keep and there's an expectation on both sides that there's this window where this relationship makes sense and then it's going to close and you're going to exit from it, friends, okay, well, then you can do it. But if you want more, you're not going to get it from him. That's a good point. Good luck. Something to consider. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Dan. I'm a... Almost 50 cis gay male in Canada. My partner and I have been together for about 22 years. And we have recently opened our relationship up to a third really special fellow who is now in a committed um, poly relationship with us. So there is the three of us. Everything's great. Everything is going really quite well, actually. But I do have one question about... Sleep. I think sleep is pretty important and getting a good night's sleep is pretty important. And the three of us really enjoy sharing a bed together, but no one enjoys being in the middle. (laughs) I mean, the snuggles are good when you're in the middle because you're sandwiched, but when you're trying to get some sleep, sometimes you want to hang your leg over the edge to regulate heat. Sometimes you want to toss the covers off because you're getting too warm. And that's hard to do when you're in the middle. So we're looking for suggestions from you or your listeners on creative solutions for making a bed more comfortable for three people. I have some experience that may be relevant. You have a king-sized bed. You have three sets of pillows. You have a couple of comforters. And you make that bed, what makes that bed, as comfortable as possible for everyone to sleep is by having another bed. Maybe you all go to bed together. There's that cuddling. There's somebody in the middle. But it's understood that the person on the end, on the side of the bed, is going to get up when everybody's falling asleep or shortly after everyone's fallen asleep and move their butts to the other bedroom. That's what makes it possible for, in my experience, three six-foot-plus long-limbed guys to share a bed. The best way to share that bed is to have an extra bed. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Rebel Scum tweets, The Savage Lovecast has become probably my favorite podcast ever, not just because sex and relationships is literally the most relatable topic ever, but also because Dan Savage is funny, frank, and I've learned so much about myself and how to be a better person with better outlooks from him. Aw, Rebel Scum, thank you. I can't accept a compliment with grace because I'm too Catholic, but thank you. Last week, speaking of Catholicism or Christianity, I mentioned the King James Bible is one of the two doorstop books I've read cover to cover three times. Jared Tomfoolery tweets, Dan should make a King James Bible audiobook for Audible's fetish section. 
As Dan says, if it exists, someone somewhere is jerking off to it. There are some dirty parts of the Bible. Maybe I could just do selections for Audible's fetish section. Interesting side note, King James, King James I of England, James VI of Scotland, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, successor to Elizabeth I of England, was a gay guy. So all those Bible thumpers out there madly thumping their Bibles are thumping away at a translation created on the orders of a man who liked to spend his time madly thumping away on top of George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, who he affectionately described as his wife. And finally, Kelly Cahill tweets, listening to this week's Savage Lovecast, and I was nearly crying about the last caller. I wish I could reach out to her and send a virtual hug and let her know there are women out there that will love and appreciate her no matter her genitals. The caller Kelly refers to as a trans woman, lesbian just starting her transition and unsure if she should even bother dating before getting bottom surgery, which could mean years alone. Well, that caller, Kelly, is a listener. All my callers are listeners, so odds are good the caller will hear this, Kelly, and receive your virtual hug. Thank you for tweeting. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and now your response calls. Hi, I'm calling in a response to episode 723 with the 27-year-old dating the 40-year-old who took her on a lovely vacation, which she didn't enjoy. I'm really more concerned about you and your level of maturity. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and I don't know what kind of partying you're doing, but apparently a lot. I just think that you're probably not ready to be in this relationship, and it's really not about him, which is a fine place to be. But I think, you know, in five years, you might look at this and be like, oh, that was a lovely relationship, and we had great sex, which is very unusual in kind, giving people, and it seems like he might be all of the above, and you're the one not in the space. But you should be self-aware of that. Hi, Dan. This is a response call for the trans woman that called in last episode. Um, I just wanted to reassure her that there are many bi, pan, and lesbian women out there, including myself, who would be happy to have wonderful lesbian sex with her while she still has a penis and will continue to love having lesbian sex with her after her bottom surgery. That attraction is not always contingent on genitalia, and that any partner who pushes or pressures you into doing any sexual act, like PIE sex, that doesn't feel good or that you don't really want to do, especially if the act gives you any gender dysphoria, is not a good partner anyway. You shouldn't have to use your penis in any way that you don't want to, and you will find someone who loves and is attracted to every inch of your body as it is now and as it changes. Hi, this is a message for the trans woman who is waiting, awaiting bottom surgery and feels like it's not going to make her desirable or acceptable to anyone. Uh, I'm a trans woman who had bottom surgery almost two years ago. I had two partners with me before surgery who were still with me. And I have a partner who met me after my surgery, about six months after, who is still with me. It's not going to be easy. I wrote a whole book about it, but it's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of energy. It's going to be a long recovery. But be open about who you are and where you're going. And maybe consider dating other trans people because you may not know this, but like there's this unspoken level of empathy that other trans people will have for you that as generous and loving and accepting as cisgender people can be, they just don't have and they shouldn't because they're not trans. I hope you work on your internalized phobias a little bit about genitals because it sounds like you still have some to work through. 
but don't write everybody off before you even try. Just be open and honest about who you are and where you're going, and you'll find the right person. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. You can also record your question on your phone using your voice memo app and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you missed the 15th Annual Hump Film Festival, we have brought it back online. We have several upcoming screenings, encore screenings by popular demand through October 10th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the Hump trailer and get your tickets for an upcoming screening. And they're still accepting submissions for the new podcast, Five Minute Fuck. They're looking for erotic fictional tales, sexy true stories, real encounters, whatever you think makes a great dirty five-minute audio clip. They're going to compile the best into one great podcast series. And one, the best one, will be picked to be animated and included in the 2021 Hump Film Festival program. Go to Five Men, that's F-I-V-E-M-I-N, fuck.com to learn more. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Dr. Jen Gunter on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me in the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.